0: So the opening statements that you've probably already read here that summarize what's happening in these verses, we find humility in utter dependence on God's care, and we can be encouraged in our fight against Satan. Two sentences that you think, okay, those are going two different theological directions, but here they're side by side in the text tonight, talking about God's care for us and our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion. But let's start with this humility that we're called to, where we left off last week in verse 5, when he was addressing the elders, he addressed the young men in verse 5, and then went on to say, "...and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because," and he quotes Proverbs here, "...God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore," verse 6, "...humble yourselves." You want God's grace? humble yourselves. He gives grace to the humble. You want to experience God's grace in your life? Humble yourself. That's the message. And he's speaking to the entire church here, where at the beginning of the chapter, he's just speaking to the elders and the Christian communities. Now he's talking to everybody. Obviously, we all need humility, don't we? Uh, maybe a little more, some of you? Okay, all right. <laughs> just just a touch. a touch more. But I want to start off tonight <clears throat> as we talk about humility by talking about the strange timing of pride. Because, again, we want to constantly remind ourselves of the context of this. Persecuted Christians, Christians enduring suffering, Christians who have been displaced from their homes, they need to be told to be humble? (laughs) Isn't that kind of strange? Or you think, uh, wow, they're in pretty humble circumstances. You'd think they would be just like face down on the ground all day every day. But they need to be told in their situation still, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and reminded of what Proverbs says. He's opposed to the proud. So don't be proud. Why would they need to be called to humility when they're undergoing such hardship? Isn't that a strange thing? Well, what happens anytime, whether you're, in a, when, whether you're going through like a, a mountaintop type experience in life and everything's just fine and dandy, Or you're down in the valley, no matter where you are. What happens when you take your eyes off of the sovereign God of the universe? That's it. What are you left with? Yeah, yourself and the people around you. So if your eyes aren't on God, who is in control of all things, and you're not focused on living for Him, you're not pursuing Him, you're not following your Lord in the example of how you should suffer if you are going through suffering, then your eyes are just going to be focused on finite, fallen man. That's what you got. And you know what that engenders? Pride. (laughs) When you start looking at yourself, and when you start looking at others, and then you start doing like a comparing thing. We're going through this in Corinthians right now, 1 Corinthians. You start looking around, and you think, okay, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy or whatever. And, um, you know, you're just thinking about all these very fallen, earthly things, and you need to be reminded to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, because he's the one that our eyes need to be fixed on. And what Peter's doing here is not just giving us this instruction and then leaving us to figure it all out on our own. He actually gives us what we need to be thinking about in humbling ourselves. So what's the first thing you notice about verse 6 that tells us about the character of God? Mighty Mighty hand. So when we think about how to humble ourselves... How do we think about God to humble ourselves? We can consider how He is mighty. This is the only time in the New Testament where the phrase mighty hand comes up. Now, the word hand comes up in regard to uh, God's ordering of things in the world in the New Testament. But as far as the phrase mighty hand goes, this is the only time in the New Testament. And I point that out because it comes up several times in the Old Testament. Can you think about where we see the phrase mighty hand? His love endures forever. Yeah, Uh, it's from Exodus and uh, all kinds of places in the Old Testament, but starting in Exodus because it's in reference most often to when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. How did He deliver them out of Egypt? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, it says, over and over again. And so I have to think that Peter probably had that Old Testament foundation in mind, that same God who delivered Israel out of the oppression in Egypt, their suffering in Egypt, that same God is... There to deliver us, to be with us, to watch over us, to empower us, all of those things. Um, When we consider how God is mighty, how He has a mighty hand, that's telling us, of course, that He's powerful to save, which we know, but He's also powerful to protect, He's powerful to deliver. He's in control, isn't He? No one else has a mighty hand in the same sense that God has a mighty hand. Thoughts on. His might, God's might. Mighty, mighty. You want to get on to those guys out there, Stacy? Thank you. They shouldn't be chatting. They should be studying. All right. Second thing that we see in here about how God leads us into humility is um, when we think about God, these thoughts that lead us into humility, is in the second part of verse 6, what does it say? Yeah, so not only is He mighty, but He exalts the lowly. Now, that's pretty amazing, because God, being the only mighty, the only capital M mighty, the only one who truly has a mighty hand, He doesn't need the lowly, right? He doesn't need the lowly. He doesn't have to exalt the lowly, does He, especially... Uh, in light of who we are and who He is, how rebellious and wicked we are, and all of our inclinations to rebel against God's commands, and how holy He is, but through Christ we're made right with Christ, or we're made right with the Lord, and we have this promise that at the proper time we will be exalted by the mighty God. Um, what's interesting is, as we in this life pursue self-exaltation, which again is what happens when you get your eyes off of the sovereign God, and you just start thinking about yourself, and you start thinking about others, and you get comparing and judgmental and competitive and all that stuff that happens, like we're reading about in 1 Corinthians. When you start pursuing self-exaltation, it never leads, in ex- leads to exaltation, does it? It never winds up in you being exalted. God says, the way that you are exalted is by humbling yourself, by giving up all ways that you think you're going to make yourself high and haughty and exalted, lifted up. If you give up all those ways, then He will exalt you, and that's the only way that you'll be exalted is by the grace of God. Uh, We're going to look at this verse on Sunday too, but let's turn back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And we're going to look at uh, this parable that Jesus tells. You remember this one. I know Andy remembers this one. This is one of Andy's favorite passages. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Someone want to read that section? Luke 18, 9 to 14? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so you go on your path to make yourself known that your name would be awesome among other people. And Jesus says, that's how you're going to get humbled. (laughs) That's not how you're going to get exalted. In your mind, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to turn out really well because I'm doing what I need to do to make myself awesome. But Jesus says the way that you actually get exalted is by considering yourself not to be awesome by making yourself a servant, by humbling yourself. Turn forward to the book of James. It's the book right before 1 Peter. James chapter 4. Same concept here. Would someone read James 4, verses 8 to 10? Okay. Wow, it's like more people than just the Corinthians were dealing with pride, huh? (laughs) You kind of get it all over Scripture. We just are so prone to start focusing on ourselves and to start thinking about ourselves and to start pursuing our own desires and lifting up ourselves in our hearts. And James reminds us, be miserable and mourn and weep. Oh my. Let your, hey, what you just did, that needs to be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And what's the promise there? He will exalt you, okay? So as we pursue humility, what do we do? Well, we recognize that God is mighty. We recognize that He exalts the lowly. He's not going to exalt us if we're seeking to exalt ourselves. And then thirdly, this is so striking. What's verse 7 telling us? Yeah, wow. He cares for us. He is mighty, He exalts the lowly, and He cares for us. Now, this word for care is found most often in the New Testament to talk about people who don't care. It's usually paired with the negative, saying, uh, don't be concerned with this or with that. It's in the minority where it's used on its own here by saying, in this sense... God is concerned about you or He cares for you. Um, He makes a deal out of you. Uh, Not that He's worshiping you in any sense, but He loves you so much that He makes it a point to pay attention to you. He has a special concern for His people, and we are subsequently able to take our cares to Him. Uh, that not that an amazing promise? We're told in verse 7 that because He cares for us, we can do what? With our anxiety. Yeah. It says in the New American Standard, casting. Casting all your cares on Him. Um, casting is when you throw something on something else. The only other time... I thought this was kind of interesting. The only other time that this word is found in the New Testament is that I think is Matthew's account where Jesus told His disciples to go get that colt for Him, and they casted their cloaks onto the colt. And so, they threw them on. Now, in Matthew or, Matthew or Mark, whatever gospel it was, it's just like a point, like, oh yeah, that's what they did with their cloaks. But when you think of it in light of this verse, and what we're to do with our cares or our anxieties, that gives us a pretty interesting image, doesn't it? That we take it and we put it on to Him. Uh, That phrase, on Him, is very interesting too. On Him. Cast your cares on Him. God is so concerned with the things you're concerned about. God cares about the things you care about that He invites you, throw them on me. (laughs) Throw those things onto me. Now, isn't that just amazing love, considering He's the mighty God who doesn't need us, but He wants us Those anxieties, as the New American Standard says, is anxiety. Those are those interests or concerns that consume us. I suppose you have a few of those. And we have to be really careful that we separate spiritual ones from worldly ones, right? There are lots of worldly things that could consume us that should not be consuming us. They distract us. They they eat at us. And we need to bring those to the throne of grace, too. But we also need to be fighting them. And then there are also those things that consume us that they're spiritual in nature. And we take those to God. And those things we should be concerned with. And He invites us to bring those to Him too. And so we cast those things on Him. Other places where that phrase, on Him, shows up is in salvation. We call on Him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says, uh, our hope, we have hope as Christians because our hope is fixed on Him. So those are two other places we see that. And then we have here to cast our cares on Him. He makes a, a deal out of our concerns. If we're concerned, He's concerned. Isn't that cool? What a loving Father we have. So, Thoughts or questions on those three items we see in those first two verses as we go into humility? Melissa? Answering Anxiety by Richard Caldwell. Yep. Yeah. Yes, <clears throat> there is a line between being concerned with something and worrying about something. Because there are lots of things we should be concerned with, but we're not to worry. Jesus says, do not worry, right? So we have to constantly be vigilant in our own heart with those things. Yep. Other thoughts? Questions? Hopes, dreams, aspirations. Yes. Right. Yeah, I've said this. I'm sure you've heard me say this before. Theologically speaking, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion where we hold God's transcendence and His eminence um, at the same time. <laughs> so transcendence means He's outside, over, above all time, space, matter. He literally created all things from nothing. He's the uncreated one, the only uncreated one, spoke it all into being, and has full command over everything. Transcendent, not bound by time, space, or matter. Wow. Yet, He cares for us and is involved. (laughs) Now, that's amazing, isn't it? Not only is He outside of time, space, and matter, but He's found within time, space, and matter, most explicitly in the Incarnation, but always by His Holy Spirit. He's outside and over and at the same time within. Every other religion is going to pick one, well, he's either transcendent or he's imminent. Every other religion picks one. Biblical Christianity says both. It's an amazing thing. Oh. Other thoughts are... ...rebukes. Hmm. Okay, well now let's talk about the devil. <laughs> Here he is. We're told in verse 8 to be sober and beyond the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and his goal is to seek someone to devour. Well, um, we can be encouraged in our fight against the adversary. In fact, we have promises in our fight against the devil. Uh, But before we get to that, let's notice the command here. Just like we have in verse 6, the start of verse 6, the command to humble ourselves, we see the command in verse 8, to be sober of spirit and to be alert. So, in addition to pursuing humility, we need to pursue sobriety. And I don't think he's talking just about uh, sobriety as like you know, don't be drunk with wine. But he's speaking of spiritual sobriety. Now, you can't be drunk with wine and be spiritually sober. So, of course, the two are related. But we are to be sober in that we are to remain. Humbly alert of spiritual activity. And this is really, really hard for us. We have this challenge not just here, it's also in First Thessalonians and in other places. Actually, you see it uh, in Jesus going to the garden to pray. And what does he tell his disciples repeatedly? Be watchful, watch, be on the alert. Uh, before he went to the garden, he was with his disciples, and uh, in one of his discourses with them. He said multiple times, be alert, be watchful, be alert, be watchful. It's really, really, really hard for you to do that. Uh, You probably know this, but you probably don't know this to the extent that it's difficult for you to do this. I don't know it. Because we are constantly surrounded by spiritual activity, aren't we? We're, We're constantly affected by spiritual activity, aren't we? And how often do we feel that way? (laughs) A <laughs> uh, fraction of the time, if we're being generous, we can phrase it that way. So we are to remain humbly alert of spiritual activity. Peter uses this word multiple times in the book. Turn back to chapter 1. Let's be reminded of what he's called us to, to do already as far as sobriety is concerned. Chapter 1, verse 13, Peter said, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be sober, and New American Standard adds, in spirit. Be sober in spirit. Chapter 4, also, chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, "...the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer." So be of sound judgment and be sober. Both times that Peter's brought it up in the book up to this point, chapter 1 and chapter 4, he's relating our spiritual sobriety with the things of the end. Be sober in spirit and be watchful. In chapter 1, verse 13 that I read, he says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near, therefore be sober. So in light of the fact that Jesus can return at any moment, which is what we believe, that's a doctrine we hold to, that's what Scripture teaches, you need to be alert. Be alert. Again, going back, I know I brought this up in First Peter. Uh, I don't know how many lessons ago it was. But in Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, that's how we are to pray, be persistent. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? So in light of the fact that Jesus is returning at any moment, Be sober, be watchful, be firm in your faith, have your hope fixed on Him. And he says in our verse here tonight, in verse 8, not only to be sober, but to be alert. He adds that word, meaning to be awake. It's quite literally what it means. So whenever we talk about being woke these days, if this is what we mean, then I'm all for it, (laughs) okay? Uh, You can be woke in this sense, that you're spiritually sober and you're perceiving rightly the world around you to perceive rightly the spiritual activity in the world around you. And so that's what Peter's calling us to at the start of verse 8, is to not only pursue humility, but to pursue spiritual sobriety. You guys got any thoughts on spiritual sobriety? Not being drunk on carnality, but being alert spiritually? Yeah, right. Um, Especially those sins of omission in our lives when we're not doing the things that we're called to do or the things that we're convicted about doing. When we don't do them, you look back, why didn't I do those things? Why wasn't I doing those things I say that I want to do? Well, maybe we're just so drunk on the things of this earth that we are not self-controlled spiritually. We're not doing the things that we want to do because our minds are not set on the Spirit, but our minds are set on the flesh. Yeah, Romans 8 talks about that. Any other thoughts? Mhm. That's right. Well, yeah, and it's it's like the fish in water kind of thing. A fish doesn't know water because he's just always in water. And here we are in this fallen world and we can just get so used to just the flesh. And we just don't even notice it. Especially in regard to certain sins where you just... It's like almost all you've ever known. You just don't even notice it. And like a fish doesn't know it's wet, we don't even notice that this is a major offense to a holy God. Man, we just don't... We're not even mindful yet. And so we start living carelessly and mindlessly. Um, the opposite is what we're being encouraged to do here. To be sober and to be alert. Melissa. Well, how about, say, so let's, um, let's put a pin in that thought and return to it, because as we talk about the devil's activity, see that we're going to start listing that off, let's bring, bring that up after we go through that, and let's revisit that thought, okay? And yeah, let's, let's talk about that, because our need for sobriety and alertness is tied exact, or right to your adversary, the devil. <laughs> Prowls around like a roaring lion. That's why Peter is admonishing you to be watchful, to be alert, is because of the reality of the devil himself. Notice the phrasing that he prowls around. Anybody else got a different phrase there that you want to share? Okay, all right. Yeah, it is the word for walks. It's the general word. What we can infer from that in other texts too is that Satan does have a measure of freedom here, doesn't he? Now, satan is always bound in a sense from the moment he was created all through eternity he's bound because he's not god anybody who's not god is bound in some sense okay now there are times though when satan is more particularly bound than others we know for instance in the millennium revelation 20 He'll be bound and thrown in the abyss. He won't be able to do certain things that he was able to do previously. We know that for Christians, I'll talk about this in a moment, he's bound in the sense that he can't or a demon can't indwell you. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But for others, he could, or his demons could, right? And so there are different senses in which he's bound, but in a big general sense, he's always bound because he's always limited by God's power, and he can only do what God allows him to do. This is not an eternal battle of... Uh, two eternal beings. There is one eternal being, the triune God, and He is the one who determines what Satan can and can't do. But the way that this is phrased here gives us an idea of, well, He's got a pretty significant measure of freedom, particularly as it relates to the community of believers. He's telling the Christian community here to watch out because the devil's prowling around you, not just generally prowling around those people out there. You be alert because he's prowling around you. And he was just talking to elders, and he, what was his encouragement to elders? What was the verb that he used in the start of verse 2? They are to do what? Shepherd. So we have this idea to shepherd the flock. We have this idea, this picture of shepherds with sheep. And now we have a picture of a lion. Are you getting the picture in your head here? And he's prowling around the sheep. And if the sheep and the shepherds notice a lion, what are they going to be doing? Are they going to go to sleep? (laughs) They're all going to say, oh, that's interesting. Let's take a nap. (laughs) Yeah, right. Depends on what age they're in, yeah, but they get their weapons out or whatever. They're watchful. They start helping each other, watching each other's backs, staying together, making sure no one gets off on their own. All right, so they're watchful and alert, and that's what the church is called to do, to be watchful and to be alert, because he is seeking to devour, meaning to overcome, to overwhelm, even uh, it's a verb that's used to talk about swallowing, to take a drink, to swallow up, like the, uh, the big fish, we don't know if it's a whale, devoured Jonah, swallowed Jonah, same idea, the devil's seeking to overwhelm or overpower people in the church. But before we get too far down that road, let's talk about the things that Satan can or can't do. I've got eight things written on my sheet, but uh, I'll just throw the first one on and then we can just kind of kick around some other ideas. I'm sure you have some things in mind. But um, he can't, okay, can't possess believers. Remember, Jesus uh, illustration that he used about the strong man. It wasn't a parable. He was giving a, a direct spiritual teaching, and he talked about the strong man. What, what did Jesus say about that? Do you remember? A thief can't come in and, oh yeah, he can't overpower, he can't, he can't plunder the house unless you first bind the strong man. you got a big strong man sitting in a house. Okay, and we're just talking human weapons here, no guns or anything. You've got a big, strong man sitting there, and a thief wants to come in. Well, he can't because that strong man's in there. So you first have to bind the strong man, and then he can go in and plunder the house. Now, what's interesting is that sounds like the, the correlations that are made here make it sound a little negative, but um, you've got a demon-possessed person. Well, Jesus casts out the demon that God may come in. Right? That's, it was right after he cast demons out of a person. He's given this illustration, given this teaching. And so for the Christian, for the believer, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The strongest being in the universe, the one true God dwelling within. You think a demon's going to bump him out? <laughs> no. No. Not so. Okay? So he can't, uh, he can't possess believers. That's just the first thing to note. Uh, yet... <clears throat> I'll add a second one. Yet... He blinds the minds of unbelievers. This is 2 Corinthians 4 4 and some other places, but 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God of this age has blinded their minds. Blinded their minds. And so that's one of the activities of the devil. He can tempt, very good, yes. Um, yeah, what did I, where, what, which one was that? Here it is. Yeah, the way I phrased it was he attempts to get believers to sin. And sometimes he's successful. In fact, a lot of times he's successful. Now, one big swing and miss that he had was when he tried to tempt Jesus, right? (laughs) Uh, No luck that day, Satan. But this is why believers are told to have the shield of faith. Because what's the devil doing? Flaming darts. He's shooting flaming darts. It says that the shield of faith protects us from the flaming darts of the evil one, the devil. Okay, what else? What, What are some other activities of the devil? You guys should know his playbook. What's he do? What's he up to? Putting you on the spot. He sows tares in the world. And Jesus, Jesus is teaching oops, there we go. Jesus is teaching about the wheat and the tares. He says that the Son of God is the one who sows the wheat in the world. His people. And the devil is the one who sows the tares who come up alongside the wheat. The devil is the one sowing those seeds. That's pretty interesting. Jesus ascribes that activity to the devil. In amongst the wheat, mixed together. Yep. Sometimes very, very difficult to distinguish. But God knows. In another teaching of Jesus about sowing, the sower, the parable of the sower, what's the devil doing in that one? Remember? Good. That's it. He snatches away the seed, which I'll put in parentheses, uh, Jesus taught us is the Word of God. The sower goes out to sow, and he's casting out the Word of God, and you've got all these different things happening, but one of the things that happens is the bird comes along and grabs the seed and takes it away, and that's the devil. That's one of the things that he does. Another thing that he does is oppresses people, and they need to be healed of that oppression. Let's look together At Acts chapter 10, I want to show you where it says that. This isn't just stuff I'm making up. This is what the Bible teaches us. Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter is preaching to these Gentiles who are about to get saved. Let's just start at verse 34 at the start of his message. Acts 10 verse 34. He says, oh, or Luke records, opening his mouth, Peter said, again, this is Acts ten thirty four. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. The word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. Then, of course, He goes on and gives the gospel to them and they believe. But this is a little note, just a, a citation here. Acts 10.38, part of this sermon that Peter's giving is mentioning how the devil was oppressing people, and Jesus went about doing good and healing them. Okay? So, that's part of his ongoing activity. It's not that the devil was oppressing people then, and he's not now. He's still oppressing people. Those people are still in need of spiritual healing. Okay? Um, we learn in First and 2 Timothy, oh, I didn't space this out very well, he um, sets traps... Huh. the devil sets traps and holds people captive there are like three passages in first and second timothy that talk about this but at the end of second timothy 2 there's a there's one of those statements let's see In 2 Timothy 2, he's talking about, he's telling Timothy to evangelize, to be patient, to be gentle, that God may grant people repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is verse 26, the very last verse of 2 Timothy 2, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare or the trap of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So that's the spiritual condition of the lost trapped by the devil, held captive by the devil, doing the will of the devil. Well, oh my. They can be set free, though, through the gospel. How many is that? One, two, three, four. I'm missing one of them. One of them from my list. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes. And in so doing... What he's doing now in the church age is he's seeking opportunities from believers. I think that's what Peter has in mind here when he says, look, he's, he's seeking an opportunity in the church to do his will, accomplish his will. And we actually have an explicit verse. This is Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.27, talking about anger, actually, where he, he, he says, Paul writes to this church saying, do not give the devil an opportunity. that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Don't give the devil an opportunity. He's looking for opportunities among believers to devour them, to split them up, to oppress them, to overwhelm them, to hold them back, all these things that are a part of His will. And and actually, believers, we find out, believers can actually be cooperating with the devil when they give him an opportunity. I mean, what's the opposite of resisting him? Well, cooperating with him. And so, if you're not resisting Him, you're cooperating with Him. So, he has uh, the devil has a large influence. Again, he's bound by the will of God, but he's been given a significant amount of freedom. And it's not just on us corporately as a body of believers or worldwide as the body of Christ that He influences us, but this happens on an individual level too, and we can't suppress the reality of this spiritual battle. We can't be lulled to sleep by just the fallen atmosphere that we've known our whole lives and just think, well, okay, it's all just you know, carnal or whatever. The the devil's he's out dealing with bigger fish. He has bigger fish to fry than me. Well, he's got quite the network of demons, okay? Now, he's not omnipresent. I'm not going to say that the devil is messing with all of us at the same time. He doesn't have the attributes of God. But He's got influence all over, all the time, through His own means. And so we have to be aware. You have to be watchful. If you're asleep to this, you will be overtaken. You will be devoured. And churches will be devoured. It's happened. And it'll happen again. So the flock of the sheep and the shepherds, just like they're aware of a lion, the uh, spiritual flock and the spiritual shepherds have to be aware of the spiritual lion, have to be watchful. And there's good news in all of this because you see here that we're told in verse 9 to resist Him. And back in James 4, there's the promise, resist Him and He will flee from you. And so what makes us different from an actual flock of sheep with an actual lion that potentially wouldn't stand a chance in an actual fight, (laughs) what makes it different is we have the promise that even the weakest Christian, by resisting Him, he has no chance. Even the tiniest believing Christian, however you want to measure that in your own head, Satan's no match for him because all he has to do is resist and he will flee. That's the promise of Scripture. Isn't that awesome? It's not like, have a lot of faith and then you can like maybe make some headway against Satan. Resist him and he will flee from you. We're told here, resist him. Be firm in your faith. Right. Yeah, thinking back to that verse at the end of 2 Timothy 2, they're already in his snare. Yeah. Yeah. His his great commission is to fight the great commission. That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm yep yeah they still smell like us, even yeah it hasn't been that long uh-huh that's right, yeah yeah so going back to your thought, Melissa, about okay, he's messing things up'm trying to I'm trying to make progress in these areas, or even you think of uh, Christian events, you know at the, a Sunday morning and just everything falling apart, and you're just thinking, what's going on here? Why are all these things that are normally just clicking. Why is it not working right now? Well, we realize the reality of, um, of course, the first one. He can't possess believers. And he's, you know, got unbelievers blinded and in a snare and all that. But he's up to this, okay? He's attempting to get us to sin. He's, um, there's real oppression that takes place, not possession, but oppression takes place. Unbelie- or believers are still affected by demonic activity. It's not that we're walking around unaffected, especially if your shield of faith is down. You will be absolutely influenced. Yes. And he's seeking opportunities for division. He can get us mad at each other. Boy, that's a huge win, isn't it? He's seeking opportunity. And that's, again, the very context of Ephesians 4, where it says, don't give the devil an opportunity. It's talking about your, your own wrath and your own anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And so we, I don't know, it's tough, because there are some people that, you've heard the phrase, they talk about like there's a demon behind every bush, you know, and it's just like everything, everything, everything's demons. Everything, everything is spiritual warfare when it's just like, no, you're just being an idiot, just stop. Um, you're doing that to yourself, stop. <laughs> but we, we can't swing so far to the other side to say, well, there is no spiritual warfare. In fact, I would say a lot of us lean too far to the side of just not thinking about it. We need to be brought back over by the, by the people who, you know, are seeing the demons everywhere. <laughs> Don't go all the way to where they are, but be brought back a little bit, okay? Um, have them sharpen you a little bit. Because you can't walk through your life pretending like all that there is is what you see. This stuff's going on. It's happening. And so we just have to be aware and there may absolutely be a time when you're going through a season or, or whatever it is, and there's just more of that type of stuff that just seems to be happening, and you need to pursue God in it. Going back to the humility aspect and remembering these things, don't give Him that opportunity where He takes away humility. Don't give Him the opportunity to adjust your eyes. You, you want to be focused on God, and yet all these things are happening to you, and so you just start looking at yourself and looking at the people around you. This is Peter's message. You're going through this spiritual battle. Keep your eyes fixed on God and stand firm in your faith. Again, verse 9, in resisting the devil, what are we doing? We're being firm in our faith, standing firm in our faith. We stand firm because He can't destroy us. And when we resist Him, He has to flee. That's how it works. That's how God set it up. And so you stand firm in your faith. Keeping your eyes fixed on God and He'll go away. Okay? Yes. Yeah, plural. Rulers, authorities, principalities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. A very active unseen world. Yep. So we resist Satan by faith. We hold on to these realities of God that he's mighty. He exalts the lowly. He cares for us. We hold on to these things. We don't let go of these things. And if we submit to God and God alone, we're resisting the devil and the devil will flee. Again, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're to remain firm in our faith that our faith in the Lord that we've come to know through the gospel. Again, Ephesians 6, stand firm, therefore, that's the command. And then to kind of put the bow on this whole thought, I love where Peter goes with this, and I kind of love that there is no other commentary. He just kind of says this, and then he moves on. The end of verse 9, Know this, that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He just kind of throws that out there. Isn't that cool? Why do you think he puts that in there, in this letter to them? <laughs> mm hmm. Especially in times of trial. You have no idea how bad it is out here, Peter. You're over there in Rome. Rome's got everything, they got the best pizza. We're in Asia Minor. <laughs> We're eating sand over here in Asia Minor. And he says, look, there's, you got brothers all over the world dealing with so much stuff. And we should be encouraged by that at, at all times. I mean, we, when we think about it, and this, maybe this is why we don't think about it very much, when we think about it, we're really burdened for our brothers who are in much more hostile situations than we are, right? Yeah. Um, Afghanistan, Korea, North Korea, China. I mean, all kinds of places around the world. And so, um, particularly for them, if you're a believer in North Korea right now, hiding in a church, underground church type of situation, you think it's encouraging to know that you've got brothers and sisters in China and Afghanistan who are doing the same thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, we, we should never think again, yeah, like Jim said, we're, that we're special, that we're on an island, that we're solo. We are members of a worldwide church, aren't we? A worldwide family, and they are all going through sa- the same things. I mean, you think, too, of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, our temptations. No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. Even in our temptations, we have brothers and sisters all around the globe dealing with the same temptations as us. <laughs> oh, they have, and the Lord told him that he's still got his people. He's got a remnant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can so easily start thinking that way, especially when we feel like we're being singled out or whatever. Um, and, of course, these believers had to start feeling that way. And, again, you, I mean, think back. It's easy for us to say in the year 2021 that we got believers all around the world. This was still really new. How big was the worldwide church then? <laughs> Not that big. I mean, if you were in their position, you might be thinking, is this Christianity thing going to make it? (laughs) I heard Jesus said, because they didn't have Matthew, they couldn't turn there. Uh, Probably didn't have Matthew. I heard Jesus said He was going to build His church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it, but it's not looking good. This isn't looking good. That would have to be pretty trippy to be in that situation. And Peter's encouraging them by saying, I know it looks bad that's the devil look to God he is mighty he has saved you and all these things you're going through these same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world wow good stuff any closing remarks next week we'll finish her off Lord willing